This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, discussing general practice in Scotland and England with Dr. Gandalf. Changing your clinical system is one of the most painful things a practice can ever do. It affects everybody. For me, the best thing is focus on your team. It is the people around you that will support you to get through this and who share those challenges with you. I've got a summary of the consultation and it takes about 10 seconds. And for me, that's a pretty awesome time-saving thing. Hello and welcome to another Snug Podcast. We are the Scottish National Users Group for GPIT. I'm Andrew McElhinney. I'm a GP in central Scotland. If you like the podcast or have any feedback, please do get in touch. The email contacts are in the episode notes. You can find us on Twitter at SNUsersGroup and you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google or Spotify podcasts or via your favourite podcast provider. We're here to support general practices in Scotland to learn, discover better ways to use the technology which supports our daily work, caring for patients in the NHS. Got a great conversation today to bring you. I'm delighted to welcome a special guest who's a GP in England and may be familiar to some of you. It's Dr Gandalf, who runs the eGP Learning Channel on YouTube and provides thousands of GPs in the UK with updates, tips and advice about how to get the best out of tech supporting their healthcare. We had loads of interesting things to talk about, including some of the ways in which general practice in Scotland is similar to that in England, and also how it's different. We discussed how increased workload, pressure on GPs is feeling very similar on both sides of the border, how our practice teams have increased in size, some of the ways that GPs can maybe look after themselves and their practice teams better, and from a tech point of view, how although the digital strategies in both countries have broadly similar aims, couple of aspects like e-prescribing and the NHS app and also the forthcoming access to patient records does make England seem a little bit further down the digital road. We get on to remote consulting and consider how trainees sitting the SCA exam may need to address the technical aspects quite closely. And finally, we discuss some of the new ways that AI-based tools can start to help us in daily practice. And in particular, I was interested in how a new tool can transcribe and summarise consultation notes and that could save a GP maybe a couple of minutes in every consultation. So listen all the way through. There's loads to get stuck into, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. So today we welcome another guest I'm really excited to talk to, the digital and tech GP, educator, guru of the eGP Learning YouTube channel, Dr. Gandalf. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. EGP learning, you know, loads of great videos explaining different aspects of general practice. I'm really impressed about how prolific you are in putting out videos regularly. Every week, there's one or two new ones that you explain all these different aspects of general practice, lots of useful education tips. How how do you get the time you need to devote to doing that while still being a busy GP? Uh, So I've got really good processes to try and create content. And the other helpful thing is a, a lot more of my content recently has been live. So actually, there's very little prep that's needed. Um, and I'm quite comfortable just going live on, on camera and, and that kind of stuff nowadays. So for that reason, it's relatively easy to do that. I've got my colleague, Andy, who I do a lot of the streams with. Um, we have a great working relationship um, and we get together every couple of weeks. So we'll do a live episode like we're doing tomorrow evening. 
Um, and at the same time, we'll record one that we then publish the following week. So it's kind of batch recording. And when it comes to the recorded content, I do that many people probably have seen like the guides and all that kind of stuff. I tend to batch those. So I'll, I'll spend a day where I'll try and do two or three videos in terms of recording. And I must admit, I have had to go down the route of getting an editor just to process all that. Because for, for about four years, I used to do all my own editing. Still enjoy it at the time, but definitely slowed me down was the editing. So outsourcing that has meant that I can do more of the focus, which is creating the content. And I get someone else to do that part of it for me. Yeah. And do you get any spare time? I do. I do. I have loads of passions outside of uh, general practice and, and EGP learning. Um, I, I love board games. Many people on the channel will know that. I'm, I'm an absolute board game nut. Obviously got two kids as well and my family that keeps me very, very busy. So started somehow, I don't even quite know how, I've now even started coaching football on Fridays without even realising it. So, And I am Fantastic. not a footballer. That's the other thing. I'm awful at football. People know that. So, But yeah, um, things happen. You're clearly good at teaching people how to do things. So, <laughs> um, It's definitely a passion. And that's actually the reason why I started EGP Learning. It was just mainly um, I wanted to show people what was the art of the possible was. And then from that, we started a podcast um, similar to yourselves. But then I, I really like showing people what to do. So then the YouTube channel became a natural extension from that. And that's basically where it's grown from. And uh, we've just hit 14,000 subscribers on the YouTube. So. Yeah, no, congratulations. That's brilliant. Yeah. And you're a GP trainer as well, are you? I am. So I've been training GPs for about six, seven years now, I think, um, uh, very much focused around education on that side of things. I also do the GP5T stuff, which is with one of my colleagues, Tara, um, and, and we basically help train the trainers, hence why it's called GP5T, training trainers to train trainees. Yeah. So I'm really interested today to, to have a chat and, and maybe to think about some of what the similarities and the differences are between general practice in Scotland and England, because we're both NHS GPs. You're in Nottingham, I'm in Stirling. That's not too far apart. Yet these are like parallel universes. We, we, we do basically the same job, but things are very different in lots of ways. So we'd like, we have different contracts, we have different GP systems. And, and in Scotland, we've just managed to spend seven years trying to re-procure a, a new hosted GP system. And we've managed to end up with just one single supplier vision. Mm -hmm. So you don't have vision at all, do you? It's all EMIS and System 1, is that right? Um, so England is very much a duopoly. So I'd say about 90, 95% of practices are, are either EMIS or System 1. There are a few vision practices, and I think there's a couple of other small systems in some places, but definitely EMIS and System 1 make up the lion's share across the country. Um, so yeah, it's a different kind of route. I think Scotland's gone down as well. Yeah, and we've got a different contract. We managed to get rid of Quaff a few years ago. You've still got Quaff, is that right? We still have Quaff. Um, there's a question about whether or not that will remain. It was supposedly going to go this year, but it sounds like we're heading towards a holding contract for 24-25 and then potentially post whatever the elections might be after that. We'll have a better idea. We here, supposedly. Sure. And from a digital point of view, I mean, the strategies in both countries are broadly similar, but yet lots of different ways of trying to do the same thing. Definitely. I think, you know, that there's various different things coming through. So there's the concept of what we call the new entrance to market in terms of creating additional players when it comes to the electronic health record. And we can also talk about it in more detail. And the big one, I guess, is the NHS app and the usability of that for patients and with practices. Um, and obviously online consultations as part of that in terms of adding information to the records. And shortly to start is obviously the prospective access to records. And I don't know how that works in Scotland, but from the 1st of November, obviously the government's very keen that all patients have access to their um, records moving forward. And that's due to happen en masse from the 1st of November. Yeah, it's a big aim, again, of the strategy to give patients access and apps and 
I, th- I think England's ahead of us in, in that aspect and also probably the electronic prescribing, you know, which is something loads of GPs are desperate for. But I just wondered, do these things like the NHS app and electronic prescribing really work well for the majority of people with you? I think different places it works really differently. I think electronic prescribing has clear benefits. The fact that you no longer have to rely on a physical token to transact your prescriptions can be a really powerful thing, particularly when you're either working remotely or obviously rurally, which I guess in Scotland is a key thing in terms of, you know, the, the, the physical distances and stuff that come into play. It does have its problems sometimes, particularly that interface between the practice and the pharmacy sometimes can be a little strained because of electronic systems. There's issues like if a pharmacy has pulled down a prescription, they've dispensed some of the items, then they won't be able to return that back to a spine. So if they can't source one of those items, which growingly, obviously sourcing of medications is becoming more and more of a challenge, then that means the prescription has to be redone in order for it to be dispensed and sent either elsewhere or to the pharmacy to do a different version. That's a growing problem within primary care and the pharmacy interface. But to be honest, I think the gains from electronic prescribing far outweigh the the downsides. And more importantly for the patient journey as well, it has made that side of things so much simpler in many cases. Yeah, no, we struggled with this um, because all the systems are split up. You know, you've got general practice systems, pharmacy systems. And I think England has obviously invested a lot more in the authentication of prescribing and the what we see as being a solution to this is just not having to sign loads of prescriptions every day. But yet, I'm guessing if you do them electronically, you still have to ratify them in some way. You do. And, and different systems have different ways of doing that. So system one, it seems to be a more efficient way of doing it. I know EMIS are adapting theirs soon to make it a bit easier. I know the kind of the signing process is a bit more complicated with EMIS and and prolonged but effectively it's um, using your smart card as the verification code and you put that in once you've approved the prescription that gets sent then electronically to the pharmacy from that point so there is still a verification process the benefit is it's not a physical signature so at least it should save your fingers and your hands a little bit of ache from having to do that hundreds of times a day yeah yeah we're, we're sitting like like we're in detention in school you know signing these big piles of paper yeah yeah it's like um, you're doing lines that went back when you were in, you know for being naughty yeah, trust me <laughs> i remember having to do it day in day out and the eps has definitely at least shifted that <laughs> and and obviously Again, with our new contract um, in 2018, we got increased practice teams. We got lots of pharmacists, physios, mental health nurses, ANPs uh, working in practices, although still employed by our health boards. So is there a similar model with you or is it different? I guess the closest similarity would be what's called PCN, so primary care networks, which started from 2019's contract variation that we had in England. Um, So that was the five year turned deal for general practice Um, and as a result of that there was the investment of what is called the additional roles reimbursement scheme which makes up the lion's share of the funding that general practice has had as part of that contract Um, so in some places I mean we're talking million pounds plus worth of um, workforce investment I guess it's worked and it hasn't worked in different places as ever Um, you know it's been based typically off footprints of 30 to 50,000 patients. And there's some that are smaller than that, some that are definitely bigger than those numbers. And it's about the collaboration between the practices in those geographical areas, typically. So for example, my PCN, so I'm a PCN clinical director, I run our local network, is 67,000 patients. It's a combination of seven practices in in inner city Nottingham. And we now have a workforce of about 30 to 40 people off the top of my head, um, working for our practices. Um, supported by a local city federation. We work quite closely with some of the other networks as well to provide those resources. Some of those practice teams are practice-based. Some of them are 
like a wraparound service. So particularly our, our social link workers that we have, they are more of a wraparound service to the practices. And we have a variety of different roles. It's not necessarily that, that every practice has had each individual role based within them. So for example, we've expanded our team very much to have pharmacists um, and aim to have at least one pharmacist per practice, but that's taken four years to get to, you know, whereas some of the other roles, like we've got some physicians associates, we've got some physiotherapists. We haven't been able to go down the route of paramedics. I think that was the one we wanted to do, but weren't able to. And the one we definitely wanted was mental health workers, but because of the workforce capacity and some of the weird changes that happened during the contract as well, meant that there was massive restrictions on that. So that would have been a really useful role for my area because inner city Nottingham, lots of mental health challenges far outweighing a lot of the other stuff that we haven't been able to focus on. And I guess that's one of the powers and the, the failures of PCNs. It's very much localized, but then top down localization, if that makes sense. And do you feel like GPs have much of a say in terms of not just, I suppose, these kind of organizational things, but also the, the systems you get to use? Um, so I think in terms of the PCN stuff, I think different practices and individuals will give you a different view in terms of how much input they've been able to have. Um, I think there has been an element of input, but as I said, there has been a lot of top-down reorganisation with that because it is very much a government-held contract. And interestingly, obviously, um, in England, practices are currently working outside of an agreed contract because the BMA, the GPC, haven't actually ratified the last two contract variations that we've had. So we are in an interesting situation there. When it comes to the clinical systems that we use, um, so I think there's taking the, the electronic system itself, the main one that we use, so typically system one or EMIS, I think most practices are able to make that decision. There is definitely in some areas some pushes to align yourself to whatever system is predominantly being used in those areas. So, for example, in my area in Nottingham, about 80% of the practices are system one. Um, and then the remaining are EMIS based. I know some areas where it's the exact opposite. I know some areas where they are completely one system. And I know some areas where they even have some additional mixes of other kind of systems as well. Um, but it's very much a practice based decision, because let's be honest, changing your clinical system is one of the most painful things a practice can ever do. It affects everybody It is one of those only things that will ever affect guaranteed everybody in the practice. So it's not the kind of thing you want to do on a regular basis by any means. Oh, no, and, and we're facing now half the practices in Scotland, you know, undergoing that upset of changing from, from EMIS to Vision. So um, it's something you don't want to do very often, but yet you want to have some control over. I mean, I guess the downside of having more than one system is that it can be more difficult to share resources. So there are some advantages, I guess, in having a single system, but then you get the downside of having monopoly suppliers and all that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's the challenge is when you've got a monopoly provision it's then how much innovation how much development has been put into it and that's a criticism laid at both emis and system one um, in terms of their duopoly status i think um like you said though if everybody's going through the same thing in scotland hopefully you'll have people out there creating those resources and i guess what i would say is if people wanted help with that i'm, I'm more than happy to support the scottish gps if you can give me an idea of how to use vision i'm more than happy to support you in terms of trying to do some of that stuff because um uh, i help people obviously with emis i help definitely help people with system one so i actually run the system one facebook users group and often have many sessions with system one as well 
but I don't neglect Emis, and I would love to help Vision. It's just I've never come across somebody actually using it, really. <laughs> yeah, no, it, uh, we used Vision for a couple of years, about 10 years ago, and then we moved back to Emis. So, you know, we have used both. But yeah, yeah. no, we'll take you up on that. Maybe next year we've got our conference and we can organise something uh, You oh. know, at the end of the year. That would be super. Obviously, in England and, and Scotland, people talk about the increased demand, the workload, worry about the sustainability of general practice, GPs burning out, low morale. I'm, I'm guessing it must be the same with you how how do you cope in making general practice you know better i think let's be honest it's really really difficult more difficult than i think the public often understand definitely more difficult than i think the politicians will ever admit to and i think the reality is is that we are seeing the impact of what's happened with lack of investment within general practice because people are leaving you know I, I i don't believe in beating around the bush when it comes to that people are leaving because they just do not have a great work-life balance i think there is a criticism that could be laid at the profession that we have partly created this ourselves the overriding altruism of healthcare professionals is part of the challenge that we face with t- tackling this and you know some could criticize that maybe we should be a little bit more business-minded and actually recognize that when we are doing things we are not meant to be doing so outside of our contract we actually need to be a little bit more stronger and saying that we are doing stuff outside of our contract and that's a difficult thing to do let's be honest because many of us want to help our patients and particularly the patient in front of us and that may mean having to turn around and say i'm sorry i can't do this which is a really difficult thing to say sometimes but i think in terms of where are we heading with that and how can we change that for me the best thing is focus on your team um, it is the people around you that will support you to get through this and to who share those challenges with you more so than i guess the people higher up and those people making those decisions on our behalf and stuff it is those people around you that will be able to support you and make it feel that this is actually something you still want to do so invest the time on your team on the people around you and whether that's you as a partner whether that's you as an employee whether that's you as just somebody walking into the practice and stuff you know check on those people around you and actually that's the thing that will help more than anything else I think there are definitely some tech stuff you could always do to try and help. And, you know, there's the advent of obviously things like online consultations, video consultations, which have their place. Let's be honest, they're not the panacea. They're not going to fix everything, but they definitely have their place in the ways that they can adjust how patient demand can be different, not necessarily better, but different. And different sometimes does mean better and how that can work more effectively within your practice team. Lots in that. Yeah, we'll get on. I'm really interested to talk about online consulting Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and that kind of thing. But I mean, just before we we do that, I mean, I do think we need to look after our teams and ourselves better. Um, And we probably all need some life coaching and and learn to set limits on our work. You know, maybe take proper breaks, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I often get asked to talk at many conferences and that kind of stuff about, you know, prioritization, productivity, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the key thing is, it, it is actually really simple to do. It's just whether you've got the willingness to do it is the yeah. more challenging part of it, because um, often just spending a little bit of time focusing on yourself and your own well-being, stepping back a little bit and looking at your processes and how that works, both as an individual and as a practice team. That's the key thing. You can make gains by doing this as an individual about how you work in a practice, whether you're a partner, salaried, locum, you know, staff, whatever. You can do some of that. But actually, if you really want the proper gains, if you want the real impact, you have to do this with other people within your practice, because actually that's when you'll find the real things that have a huge impact on the way that you work. Sure. And yeah, I mean, just I suppose also being aware of when 
we're becoming not just stressed but actually overwhelmed is really important there's a great um i don't know if you know it there's a podcast called you are not a frog have you heard of that one yeah i've done loads of stuff with rachel before she's an amazing podcast and definitely she's she's been in the top five of my gp podcasts that you need to listen to kind of things on a regular basis so yeah yeah, she's got some amazing stuff out there yeah absolutely so so yeah going back to a couple of things you touched on there I, i think if we think about the pandemic there's been lots of things that have changed our lives but three things i can think of remote working has become a big thing asynchronous consulting and that, when we talk about online consulting I mean, I guess there's the asynchronous bit like e-consults but then there's live video consultations I know you've just posted a video all about that but just interested to see what you think about those three things you know about how much they've taken off in, in your experience Sure. I mean, if we take remote consulting, first of all, so not having to physically be in the practice or in the clinical room, I think there's real power within that. I think it's understanding what you can and can't do. That's the first thing. If you can understand that, it can be a lot more easier. Um, You know, the power of being able to do telephone or online consultations, not on site. And the main reason for that is it helps with the estates challenge that everybody is facing with. Let's be honest. We know that estates across the entire healthcare system, but especially in general practice, is just not where it needs to be. So it can be useful in helping with that and therefore meaning that you prioritize your physical clinical space for things that need to be done physically. Okay. I think in terms of the asynchronous consultations, or I know many people use that synonymously with online consultations and like you say, the e-consults or, you know, the accuracies or whatever and that kind of stuff. I think they have real benefit and they have real understanding of how to look at demand that you may have. And it can actually give you some elements of capturing demand as well, more effectively than what we had before. I think cloud-based technologies will change some of that with the telephony systems that are coming in. So for England, at the very least, the main support we are now getting for this financial year is about the shift towards cloud-based telephony to basically quantify our demand that we have. But actually, online consultations does that to a degree because it basically digitizes your workload in terms of what you have coming through. And it does mean that you can signpost certain things to the relevant parts of your practice. So for example, you don't have a patient booking in to come and see you for a medication review when they absolutely could have seen a pharmacist first and foremost. You can signpost and direct them to that relevant and correct appointment at the first point. You know, you can do the similar things for common MSK issues with your physiotherapist. You can direct your minor illnesses to, for example, your ANPs or to your PAs or other kind of roles and stuff as well. And therefore, meaning that hopefully that the GP clinicians are then able to focus on those things that do actually need a GP's attention, GP skills, and, you know, thinking outside of the box uh, and stuff. So that can help from there. But you also need a workforce in order to do that work. That, that's the part that people forget about. And you do need to think about how this is going to work within your practice, because it's not going to fit every patient is the other thing. So absolutely, there's going to be the, the digitally able who can do this really easily and well. There's going to be the digitally challenged for whatever reason, whether it's down to language, infrastructure, you know, reception in terms of data and that kind of stuff. And understanding how you still need a mechanism to help them. And, and that's the key thing. I, I don't believe you can do the whole all or nothing. It has to be a mix of stuff. And understanding that because of that mix, you're going to have different ways you need to manage it as well as a result of that. And then lastly, you asked about video. So um, video was very much seen as a panacea of of general practice. It was going to change the way we do general practice so that everyone will be able to get an appointment, see a GP whenever they wanted, however they wanted. And let's be honest, it has definitely not done that. Um, Babylon, you know, well, a popular company, isn't it? Marked example of that. In fact, they've just changed the GP at hand, the NHS version. I think yesterday just renamed itself EMED. GP at hand 
And the reason for that is, is that um, the infrastructure, to be honest, isn't as good as people think it is to allow video consultation to work as well as people hoped it would. That's the first thing. However, patient use of video consultation has, in terms of acceptability, has improved because of the pandemic, because everybody had to go onto Zoom and Teams and stuff like that. So actually, the ability to do that is necessarily there. I think in certain situations, it can really work effectively. So definitely remote care um, and rural care. And it can save so much time in terms of do I actually need to see this patient? You know, it can on that basis be a really valuable triage tool to help you understand it, particularly in those out of hours situations. I do also think in terms of nursing home care or when you've got a clinician having to work remotely to a single or subset of patients in another location and facilitated by somebody else. Now, whether that's a healthcare assistant, whether that's another clinician or potentially care home staff and stuff, actually that can help to structure the care. So you've got a better understanding of how things work and stuff. And I think that can be a really powerful mechanism that will save a lot of clinician time rather than the potential journey over, you know, the additional uh, impact and stuff of them having to go to a physical location and stuff. So I think it has its benefits. Important to recognize that the GP exam is gonna to move to a video consultation interface. Now, does that mean you have to do video consultation to pass it? Not necessarily, but I think you do have to have an understanding of how to be comfortable doing a consultation through a video interface rather than necessarily doing video consultations if you want to pass the exams. Because as much as it is about consulting, and that's what it's meant to be testing, the interface, I think, is something that people need to understand and be able to do effectively. Otherwise, that anxiety of doing it through a different route may impact their ability to pass the exam as a result of it. So it's a nuance, but it is an important one, I feel, that needs and particularly our new trainees to look at and stuff. And again, you've covered that in recent videos we can point people to, which are really, really helpful. Yeah, I, I keep harping on about the tech stuff when it comes to the SCA. I'm, I'm genuinely worried about that stuff. So I've got a trainee who's about to sit the SCA in the first cohort in November. I know for a fact my building's Wi-Fi, internet provisioning, goes down almost every few days or so. So I'm terrified it's going to go down when he's actually sitting his exam. So having to put in back end and redundancies and all that kind of stuff to try and prevent that from happening is, is an interesting cost prospect and stuff. Absolutely. And I, I know a lot of the, well, I've heard examiners talking about their concerns about the tech aspects mm -hmm. of it as well. We'll, we'll see how it goes. I, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I suspect in a few years we might end up going back to some kind of regional face-to-face -face arrangement, but we'll, we'll see. It'd be interesting. Um, a lot of what you've just said there, I mean, I was lucky enough to be able to speak to Professor Bob Wachter um, on the podcast fairly recently. And again, his feeling was that we need to be more efficient and we need to try and focus on using the tools to get the right people face to face that we need to see. Because I think beforehand, I was kind of thinking after the pandemic, I hate the telephone. I, I, the job's about face to face contact. That's what's rewarding. That's what we should be aiming for. But now I think there's such a demand for care that we just need to be a lot smarter about streamlining things and trying to point people towards whatever people or resource can help them best. Uh, and, and that might not be us. True. And I think it's also recognizing the strengths and weaknesses of the clinicians within the practice as well. You know, I've, I've come across some situations where absolutely people feel that equality of workload needs to be a priority within their practice. So they want everybody who's at the same level doing the same sort of thing. And, and that makes sense. Completely agree with that. But I, I guess I would compound that with if you've got clinicians in your practice who are very anxious about doing, for example, remote triage, you know, about the anxiety of not physically being able to see somebody or actually struggling to do that because they don't get the nonverbal communication. They don't get that reassurance of being able to see those, you know, additional cues and stuff. Then actually 
don't force them to do a type of consultation that's just going to not work as well. So you know, if they end up bringing down 80% of the patients they speak to on the phone, how is that effective for them? How is that effective for the patients? And how is that effective for the practice? Actually, maybe focus on them doing the face-to-face stuff, the stuff they're good at and they enjoy, and have other people who are more comfortable doing the triage stuff focus a bit more on that. And that may work more effectively as a system for your local practice rather than trying to work towards equality for everything in terms of the actions that you're doing. Yeah, no, there's, there's so much in that. And we're all trying to work out the best way forward, aren't we? Mm-hmm. What, what, what makes you optimistic for the future? I think there needs to be change coming at some point. It has to change, otherwise we're going to see a massive um, problem. I, I do actually think opening access to the records is a really powerful thing. So I know that in England, obviously, we've got the prospective access happening. I do think the mass switch on I don't agree with because there are concerns I've got personally about, you know, patients with, for example, safeguarding issues, you know, those kind of things, having open access to their records. But I do think generally speaking, it's a really positive move and giving patients access to their records in that way can be a really powerful tool that can only help them understand their own healthcare needs, but actually help with some of the demand side of things. So instead of having to contact patients back with their results, you can say, actually, I'll put your results on your records and there'll be a note in there that says what you need to know about and what you need to do about with them at that time that you can access through this route. Requesting your medications through the NHS app is a really useful way of people to have a better journey when it comes to getting their medications. And what proportion of patients actually use the NHS app? So it's not as much as I know they want it to be. I I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I know that it is increasing. Obviously, the COVID vaccination element of the the app and stuff massively improved that. And I also know that the NHS app team are looking at focusing on those parts of the access as well. So I know in our practice, we're starting to push patients towards using the repeat medication requesting feature of the NHS app a lot more, because from my perspective, the patient can then see exactly when those medications were requested, exactly when they're due, and if they have been issued already, so they know whether to come to us or they need to go to the pharmacy if they haven't been able to obtain those medications. So saving that journey and making it clearer rather than them coming back and forth between us and the pharmacy saying, where's my meds? Because they don't know. Actually, the app will show them the audit trail of that and where it is. So it makes that journey so much easier. And it digitizes it. So it's not the whole, oh, well, he said this, she said that, all that kind of stuff. It's clear as day. And I think that will really help many patients who struggle when it comes to obtaining their repeat medications. Are you using any of the new AI tools in a work context at the moment? Um, I I use a few things. So definitely I use some of them when it comes to the EGP learning, much more so from that point of view, because I don't have to worry about patient identifiable information, which is a concern Um, when it comes to general practice. So I do use ChatGPT for some of the stuff in general practice. So what I have used it for, for example, is a lot of social media posting I do around general practice so quickly to create notifications and, and posts for patients about healthcare. And it's really powerful at doing that. And if you want to have a better engagement with your community, it can be really useful to do some of that stuff. Um, I also have used it sometimes to summarize information into different ways to make it more available for patients. So whether it's things like communications that we are sending out to patients to make it a more readable level, because it's really nice to do that. You can actually even use it to help reply to your complaints and stuff if you really wanted to. And I've used it to summarize, for example, scan results into a way that patients can understand 
obviously not including the identifiable information of that, of that report and stuff. That's one thing I think is really good. Yeah. Um, I think one that I'm starting to use and have really enjoyed using is a platform called Nabla. So I covered this on the stream a couple of uh, weeks ago. And it's a tool that basically um, uses an AI algorithm to summarize the recording of the consultation that you make live. So whether it's audio or video based, and then it puts outputs that into a shortened version or a summary of the consultation to put into the notes. And it is not bad, to be honest. I'd say it's about 70 to 80% effective. I end up having to add a few extra words here or there. That might be my own personal preference because of safety netting information. I think it could be a little bit stronger on that. But as a result of that, it does save a lot of time when it comes to your documentation process. And it's different to dictation because the whole difference with dictation is you still have to formulate and say the consultation notes at the end, which can be really powerful if that's the way that you think and quick if you're doing it that way. But this does it as you're in the background, as you're doing the consultation. And it takes about 10 seconds once you click the button to summarize it. So then it will then about 10 seconds after you finish your consulting, which often I then do the blood test or request the prescription while it's doing that. I've got a summary of the consultation that's about 70, 80% accurate in about 10 seconds. And for me, that's a pretty awesome time saving thing. No, I think that's right. That's something that excites me about the future is just how these new tools will start to become practical and, and more useful and, and make mm -hmm. life better, really. Okay, no, it's been great to talk today. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, you are Dr. Gandalf52 on Twitter. Yep. And yes, any, any last bits of advice for GPs in Scotland and their use of tech? Um, so I think with particularly the changes you guys have got heading over to Vision for those practices that are anxious about it, I think definitely lean on the community of other people around you. That's the best tip I can give you because it is going to be points where there's going to be difficulties and it's going to be challenging and stuff. I think also have a think about how you use things like SMS technologies and that kind of stuff. I, I do see some challenges coming with some of those communication tools that probably from primary care's perspective and including the budget. So uh, the SMS fragment cost is an ongoing discussion in many places. And that's somewhere where you can use things like AI to try and streamline a lot of the stuff that you're doing. So using smart web links, for example, or shortened versions and stuff. Um, but those tools are pretty awesome and can help you massively in primary care. So how can you use those more effectively? Big fan of things like the Acurix Flores. I think they can be really time saving um, when you've spent some time figuring out which are the ones that can really help you. So that's the questionnaire based kind of things uh, for a consultation and capturing the right information to work within that workflow and stuff. So see how those go. But if you want more details as ever, just have a look on the EGP learning channel and I'll probably be covering some new topics and things coming out soon as well that may be useful for anyone out there in general practice. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to advise everyone uh, in, in Scotland general practice to watch your videos uh, on EGP Learning. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. So I have now tried out the Nabla Copilot software, which looks like a great discovery. And I'm really looking forward to seeing if it helps me run to time a bit better in my surgery for the next couple of weeks. Do go and look at the EGP Learning channel on YouTube. I'll link to it, and there's also a podcast version as well. And you can follow Dr. Gandalf on Twitter, and sorry, I just can't be bothered calling it X, at Dr. Gandalf 52 the digital and tech GP. We won't manage to get him to this year's Snug Conference, which is at the end of November, but maybe next year. Speaking of the Snug Conference, you can see the agenda and register if you look at the link in the episode notes. It's on Wednesday, November the 29th at the Westerwood Hotel in Cumbernauld. There'll be the chance to catch up with people, speak to the system providers, and of course, 
Arsene Andrews Knight, Kaylee. There'll be a big focus on GP system change, and we'll actually be hearing from the experiences of practices who have moved to the new hosted system, and lots of advice for practices who have yet to move. There really are lots of good workshops, um, touching on areas like speech recognition, online chronic disease reviews. There's one on virtual reality, focusing on the experiences of patients with dementia, which I'm really looking forward to. Telephony, Docman, the new digital platform. I think it sounds like a brilliant programme. And of course, the videos will be available on the Snug website afterwards for our Snug members. That's it. Hope you've enjoyed our discussion today. And thanks again to Dr. Gandalf and hope to speak to you soon.